Yes, welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema with me, your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, on 2XXFM on the 98.3 frequency. This week, we're taking a look at some cinematic depictions of the pains of motherhood. So I was invited to go and see uh, the the uh, film uh, Quo Vadis Aida, which has been newly released to Australian cinemas. It's a 2020 film, but it's only just come out here in Australia. And I was struck by its depiction of motherhood. I mean, I've seen many films about motherhood. I guess every film is about motherhood in a way. There's always some kind of motherly figure, I suppose, in basically every story, every folktale, fairy tale, or film uh, that you go out and see or read. Um, but in this film in particular, I was, I was particularly struck by the way the film was structured. And I was like, why don't we do a whole week or a whole, a whole show on, on not just motherhood, but but the, the pains and the stresses that that mothers undergo in life. I mean, we often, we, we often talk about, you know, the, how rewarding it is to be a mother, to see your children grow up and achieve so much. And, and how it's saying that a lot of women grow up to wanting uh, to do and be and that sort of thing. But very often in stories and throughout culture, motherhood is actually depicted as something that's, that's well, it's deeply profound, but sometimes very traumatic or trauma-inducing. Um, it, it's a very pressure-inducing or it's a very pressurized role to take on. And, and I suppose in, you know, in that sense, it can be a very terrifying ordeal, or at least it's a very terrifying responsibility for those that take it on. Now, I suppose that does sort of bring into question whether that's nature or nurture, is it that society um, puts a lot of responsibility on mothers and maybe not so much fathers and that's an issue or is it, is it some kind of biological element I'm not really going to talk about the extent to which it is nature or nurture and point fingers at whose fault is and that sort of thing this week I think we're going to talk about what are some solutions or how, how what are some ways in which we can assist mothers or if you are a mother how we can conceive of what we do the things that we do um Oh, you do, I should say. I've never actually been a mother. <laughs> I mean, I was a mother to some hermit crabs when I was about 11. I was pretty successful at it. I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, but basically, what, what are some solutions to this terrifying and trauma-inducing experience? Or this experience that is very often um, very pain-inducing. Um, before we go into the films, we do like to talk about how motherhood or, or the concept we talk about uh, has been uh, depicted or conveyed throughout history in, in culture and literature and that sort of thing. I mean, how many mothers are there? How many famous mothers are there through art and history and culture? I mean, infinite. Um, but I think the main ones, I think, at least the way that we talk about mothers is they tend to be sort of the source of everything, the source of life, very often depicted as something that, you know, they have an ability to, to, to create something from nothing. Um, if you talk about something like uh, Jesus's mother, the Virgin Mary, I mean, it's, it's crucial that she's a virgin, right? It seems that there's, it's, it's almost like a soul act that she performs all on her own to create the Son of God or, or, or God, right? You know, the way that the, the Trinity works. The, he is sort of the, the, the original source of all energy, uh, the source of all things. He came from his mother. He came from Mary. So, the, so and, and if you go and watch um, The Power of Myth, the six-part miniseries that Joseph Campbell did many, many years ago, he talks about this a lot and talks about the idea that throughout so many cultures and, and societies throughout history, mothers are sort of deemed to be the, the source of all life. We talk about the idea of Mother Earth and Earth and life and, and all things organic. That's coming from this sort of, this sort of female figure uh, and ultimately is a sort of a motherly figure. And of course, there's always depictions of things like the devouring mother and things like that threaties. But we're not going to really talk so much about the devouring mother so much, that, that kind of archetype. We're going to talk more about, you know, what it's like to actually be a mother and, and, and to deal with it. Or, or not so much to be a mother and, and how to deal with being a mother, but, if, but being a child of a mother. 
or being the husband of a mother, uh, being related to a mother in some way, um, how can we assist them or what's, what's some of the things that we need to learn about or, or, or be maybe a little bit more sympathetic towards? Um, so go in order to go into all that, Let's get started with the films this week. So the first one's going to be, of course, Quo Vadas Aida, a 2020 film directed by Jasmila Zebanich. We're then going to move on to a Mike Lee film from 1996, and that would be Secrets and Lies. And then we're going to finish off with an Ingmar Bergman classic from 1978, and that would be Autumn Sonata. But let's get started now with our first film, Quo Vadas Aida. So if you're not a native Latin speaker, if you're not from Latin America, Quo Vadis Aida basically translates to where are you going, Aida? And we'll get into Aida's character in just a moment. But if you don't know much about this film, the, the premise or I guess the surrounding circumstances of this film uh, is that it's set during the Serbian invasion or, or occupation. I should say you know, this is a pretty touchy uh, historical era or event. Uh, we're talking about the Srebrenica massacre here that took place uh, in the mid-1990s, and obviously this it's a pretty um, fresh wound for a lot of people. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into the nitty-gritty of the, the, the historical facts and things like that. Obviously, uh, it is a very complicated event. We're going to talk about more of the characterization and that sort of thing, and the experiences of the characters themselves. But if you don't know much about it, have a quick read-up of the Srebrenica massacre. It's probably worth your time just to know what actually happened there. Um, Pretty recent history, and if you don't know much about it, go and see this film because it's a, it's a really you know it's a, it's a very moving uh, experience. Uh, but basically, it's set around the Srebrenica massacre, in which Serbian forces basically came in, and there was a big UN facility where all these refugees, all these Bosniak refugees, were being held, and the Serbian guys came in. And, and it, by the way, this we could have done this film on um, the whole idea of negotiation and power dynamics and soft power and and manipulation because all the negotiation scenes and the way that the different power structures interact is, is so fascinating in this film. The, the dialogue is really impressive. The acting, the, the performances are really, really good. Uh, we could do a really good week on gaslighting and this would be like the perfect film for that. Um, but basically there's an arrangement made where the Serbs say, look, we're going to take all these people away. We're going to give them food and Mars bars and all sorts of things and we'll take them away to safety. We don't want to hurt any innocent people and everyone's kind of like, it's a little bit too good to be true. And then basically it comes to, um, it, it becomes evident that what they're doing is actually separating the the women and and children and bringing out the the Bosniak boys and men and putting them on separate buses. Um, so there's a whole great there's a great deal of suspense here about what's actually happening to these boys. Why do they need to be separated? And uh, no prizes for guessing what they might be actually doing. Obviously, this is a, a pretty intense, uh, violent conflict. So uh, I suppose part of the reason they're doing that might be because there's a fear that these are the guys that they're going to have to fight if they're going to have to fight back an opposing force. Maybe see these are some of the guys that have killed Serbian troops. Um, in recent months and, and years. So basically, that's that's the premise of the film. Now, hearing me talk about that, you might be thinking, well, it sounds like the victims in this situation is, well, I guess it's everybody, and we're going to get into the, who the true victims are in, in different ways in, in a moment. But you might be thinking, you know, it seems like the Bosniak men and boys are the real uh, victims here. These are the ones that are being sort of shuttled off going to these uh, places to potentially, you know, be killed. Um, you'd think that a film about this sort of event might center on the experiences of one of these men. Um, but, you know, going off the title, it's not. It's uh, Quo Ida and Ida is this translator that works for the UN and she has she's, she's from Bosnia and she has um, a, a husband and two sons and the film actually centers on her so they've structured it that way or at least the way that it's, it appeals to you as an audience member of the film is that it, it, it does stress or at least highlight um, the experiences of the mother 
in a potential in a situation where she faces potential loss. Uh, so it doesn't actually suffer on the loss itself or the potential loss of life that's actually going to um, come about. It's more that the, the potential loss or the fear that the mother has for the loss of her children. So this brings into this whole this this brings into the conversation this concept that. That the torture felt by another, or at least the, the torture felt by a mother who loses her child or, or fears losing her child, is, is sort of worse than the feeling experienced by the person who is actually being killed. Which, which does sort of convey motherhood to be an extremely profound experience, right? When you feel that self-sacrifice uh, is so much more appealing than seeing the sacrifice of, of your own children. Uh, and, 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 you know, even, even her husband uh, in this film seems to be sort of less valuable to her than her two boys. And we do really, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a mother nor am I a woman, but I almost felt a sense of deep empathy. Like I really could understand why she would be feeling such a sense of internal pain seeing that guy. I mean, evidently they would. And, you know, a bit of a sidetrack here. I think this is also a fantastic symbol for the, the feeling of the country, uh, of Bosnia, or at least the, the city of Srebrenica, uh, if, if we see that itself as a mother or as a motherly entity, um, it, it's almost like the people that live on, that have to live with the grief of the loss that that, that took place during this massacre, um, that's almost worse than the people that the experience of the people that actually uh, died. It's almost as if to say that um, the, the experiences of the country and the culture itself and the pain of grief is worse than the pain of death. So so we're, we're already conveying motherhood as this deeply... Um, you know, pain-inducing experiences, uh, experience of this. So, so we have to then start to consider what is the effect of this for a prospective mother, um, knowing that this is something that she's going to have to deal with, knowing that she's going to have these very valuable um, objects of affection in her life, be that her, you know, being her children. You know, that almost seems like something that might seem like too much of an ordeal to take on. And we're going to sort of um, break that question down in just a moment in, with our next, with the discussion of our next film. But before we do, just a reminder: you are listening to Two Double X FM on the. 98.3 frequency people powered radio here at 2XX. If you'd like to keep listening to some more fantastic people powered content, uh, there's plenty more great programming coming on uh, coming <laughs> uh, that, that, that's on your way if you're listening live. But you can jump onto the website and you can listen on demand as well while you're there. Feel free to sponsor the show or subscribe to the station, or oh, that would be very much appreciated. But now, moving on to the next film. This would be Mike Lee's 1996 film, Secrets and Lies. Let's say you're a prospective mother or you're someone that's staring down motherhood and, and, and you know that there is this potentially pain-inducing or, or trauma-inducing experience coming away that the rest of your life is going to be characterized that to some extent. How, how are you going to react to that? Well, in this film, in, in classic Mike Lee uh, for, uh, in classic Mike Lee style, I should say, we have talked about Mike Lee's films before. We talked about Another Year uh, a couple of months ago uh, when we talked about The Ick. We also did it, gave, give a brief mention to Naked as well, I think, uh, when we were talking about Red Rocket and the, that week on Sean Baker films. Um, but in classic Mike Lee style, uh, this this film sort of starts off with a pretty large uh, cast uh, who are all seemingly unrelated. We've got Morris and Monica, who are a married couple that they don't have any children, uh, and we also have Cynthia and Roxanne. Now, Cynthia, it, 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 you find out that is actually Morris's sister, and Roxanne is her daughter, meaning that Roxanne is the niece of Morris and Monica. And then we also have this character of Hortense, who isn't really related to anyone, or so it seems. Because what it, 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 it comes, it, 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 you soon, 
<laughs> so I'm having a lot of difficulty stringing some of these um, linking sentences together. I apologize for that this week. Um, it, it, it comes into fruition. Uh, we find out that uh, Hortense is actually uh, the, the abandoned, I shouldn't say abandoned, but she was she's the biological daughter of Cynthia. And we should say that Cynthia isn't particularly well off. She's a pretty working class young lady, again, in classic Mike Lee uh, form. Uh, she works in a factory and she's a pretty stressed out lady. She's sort of middle-aged. She's got no, you know, no father helping her out with uh, Roxanne, who's just about to turn 21. And she's just all frazzled the whole time. Uh, very similar to a lot of the other uh, characters that we see in a lot of other Mike Lee films. And there's a, there's a scene in this film that I think really stands out when um, Cynthia's phone rings and it's Hortense on the other line. And it takes a while for Cynthia to realize what's actually going on and it's revealed that Hortense is her long-lost biological daughter. And it's almost like a horror scene. Um, I remember we talked about Requiem for a Dream. We talked about the idea of, of creating horror out of victimhood and, and, and the, the, the deep sense of fear and horror that someone can feel uh, in, in a state of self-inflicted, you know, even in self-inflicted victimhood. We can very often feel a very deep sense of sympathy for someone that sort of finds themselves in their, in their own shadowy hallways, uh, running from, you know, the life that they've crafted for themselves. And this, this shot where she picks up the telephone and keeps ringing is kind of shot like an Aronofsky film in a way. He gets a lot of mentions this week. It's pretty good for you, old Darren. Um, but it's sort of it's coming from from the floor, and it's like the the the, the, the telephone is like this kind of it's like a, like a this really terrible thing, and it's ringing, and the the hallways are all dark and shadowy, and it is a little bit like a horror movie that, that, that what's on the end of the line is something that's really going to induce uh, a lot of pain uh, for poor old Cynthia. So uh, with this, we, we sort of have to bring into we sort of have to start asking ourselves, you know. Is the fear of is the fear of motherhood because obviously Cynthia you know is at first very like fearful of meeting up with Hortense and, and all this other thing and that's pretty self evident why that might be you know she feels obviously very guilty about what's going on and there's a whole bunch of other issues going on in her life um, but is that fear that she feels that fear of being Hortense's mother that fear of motherhood does that come from a lack of love well I think what this film lifts up is not actually coming from a lack of love at all it's rather coming from a fear of being condemned to love, having to take on that responsibility and all the things that come with it, right? So it's, and, and, and okay, it is also partly this this loss of youth and freedom and that is sort of uh, delved into a little bit in this film. There's an interesting shot where... Um, Cynthia staring herself in the middle, with, staring herself in the mirror with this, with this, um, you know, this massive frown on, clutching her own breasts and sort of looking at herself and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not the young woman that I used to be. But I think it's more a fear of failure, especially when you consider the societal pressure that that's put on mothers, to, you know, to be good mothers, not neglect their children, that sort of thing, when, when the rest of us don't have to deal with that unless you are an actual mother. And, and that's all on top of all the biological stresses that are probably there, uh, you know, at, you know that, that sort of, you know, engage you into protecting your children, like, you know, like a lioness does her cubs and that sort of thing. So there's a great deal of responsibility and there's a fear that, you know... A lot of us, you know, especially someone like Cynthia, who who isn't that well, you know, well equipped in life to begin with, can't really take care of herself. Fears what she has to take care of um, when she has to take care of another human being. When that's what she's got to take care of, that is a very uh, fear-inducing thing. And of course, there is another sort of subtextual element to this film as well, uh, which is that Hortense didn't come into this world through very fortunate circumstances. Uh, and that sort of seems to be something that's not really mentioned explicitly throughout the film, but it is very much implied. So that's a whole other layer on top of this. When we talk about motherhood, it does always take two to tango. And sometimes that isn't something that is consensual. Uh, and even when it is, it, it, the circumstances around that may actually be something that still induces a lot of trauma. Maybe it's an ex-partner who, um, you know, was 
very sort of emotionally abusive after the point of the birth or as someone that you don't want to have to um, associate with because of the way that they were. So when you look at your when you look at your child, sometimes you, you know it does remind you of, of a trauma-inducing event that you had to undergo. And this, of course, reminds me of something like the film. So it reminds me of the film Babadook, which we talked about um, when we talked about beauties and beasts and the idea that whenever uh, whenever Essie Davis's character has to look at her own child, she has to be reminded constantly of what happened um, to her husband who who died on the way to, to take to taking um, her, her son to, to taking her to hospital to have her son, uh, which is a great metaphor, and I think it does deserve to be sort of um, brought up again this week. It's it the idea that we, when we see the birth of a child, we kind of see the death uh, of yourself as a child, or the you know the death of that person you were when you were young and carefree, and, and and even if you made mistakes, they didn't really matter. It was all part of the process. So that's all brimming to the surface here. And the film is probably called Secrets and Lies. And, it's, you know, Morris's character actually blurts that out at one point in the film, which is very apt. It's probably called Secrets and Lies because Cynthia's stress and, and you know, her frazzled hair is all coming from the fact that she sits on the, up, upon this massive bundle of secrets and lies. And, and, and you know, the, the first one being that she's responsible for Hortense, um, but hasn't really told anyone, hasn't told Hortense her, her entire life. Or I mean, biologically responsible. I mean, she's, a, she's you know, that's her child and she's never actually taken responsibility. And that, that I guess that's a, a great deal of, uh, there's a great deal of guilt that comes with that. And she probably feels a great deal of um, regret and also feels shame, you know, and, and about the, you know, all the people around her and her life that know about that sort of thing, knowing that she abandoned her. I shouldn't use that word. Who had to set, a, set her up for adoption? Um, you know, there's a great deal of, uh, you know, the great deal of secrecy around that whole ex that, that whole endeavor. Uh, and also, one of the other main parts of this film is that she actually has another daughter, um, Roxanne. And it's a really interesting scene when Roxanne finds out about all this sort of stuff because there isn't really, uh, you know, a, an obvious reason why she'd be so upset. But it, you, you feel it because you understand that. You know, if, I mean, this is the beauty of Mike Lee's films, I suppose. You know, he is simulating reality. Uh, and, and part of that is he's not actually having to spell out why people get upset or angry. You just see it, right? You see your own life on the screen. I just, I just love his, his filmmaking stuff. But, you know, when you, when you think about Roxanne's character in this film, you can't help but think, you would feel sort of betrayed by your own mother for not introducing you to your daughter, but, but, but feeling that her love is now inevitably split uh, between you and this other person, and, and that feels like a great betrayal because you've been conditioned your entire life to feel like you're her only daughter. Even though they didn't really, they was kicked off the whole time. They never really got along. You know, part of that is probably because she felt neglected by her mother, Cynthia. And so Roxanne is feeling, you know, not only am I neglected when I'm the only child, but now there's another child who's this, you know, this very chic, you know, professional, uh, clean and tidy person. You know, none of none of those things that you know I I embody. I don't embody any of those things. You can't ever think that there is this sort of sense of portrayal, this sense of um, you know that she that her mother is a bit of a traitor of her her own responsibilities or responsibilities to Roxanne. So this is another bundle of secrets that 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 Cynthia has had to live with all this time. And then on top of that is um, Morris and Monica's situation in that they are willing parents but unable but are unable to have children. And it was obviously the inverse of that is Cynthia's situation, which she was able to have children but was unwilling to do it. So she's sort of spitting in their face, so to speak, all right, to say, look, I know that you want nothing more than a child but you can't have it. Uh, well, I don't want anything more than a child or I don't want anything less than a child, however way you put that, but I don't want it. You know. So again, there's a, there's a sense of secrecy there uh, and lies that ensue from all that because she feels that you know there's a great deal of pressure coming you know just from that situation that she has with her brother so i suppose the moral of the story at the end is to have it out right that that, that, that 
we we kind of need to tell the truth in these situations. If we do fear being a mother, we do need to tell people about that. And if we are a mother and we're finding it difficult, we do need to voice that to the people that love us the most, even our children. Uh, and I suppose that doesn't really happen in this film to the last sort of final scene. So let's move now to our final film, which which does show plenty of scenes in which mothers and daughters are having it out, uh, or mothers and children are having it, I should say, um, and, and see where that takes us. So we're going to finish now with Autumn Sonata from, uh, from Ingr- Ingmar Bergman. 1978 film. If you're not sure about this one, so if you haven't seen this one, if you're not sure about watching this one, or you know, go go watch this great film. Um, so it basically centers on three women, and that would be Eva, her sister Helena, and their mother Charlotte, who is played by. Now I get to say Ingrid Bergman uh, this week, which is nice because every time I go to say Ingmar Bergman, I always accidentally say Ingrid Bergman, but it's actually Ingrid Bergman in this movie. And um, the premise of the film is that Charlotte is coming to visit Eva and her and her husband. Um, you know, Eva's mother, Charlotte, is coming to visit her, and also Helena, who has um, she has cerebral, cerebral palsy. She lives with Eva as well, and Eva takes care of her almost as if she's like a mother to her in a way. Um, and there's all this pressure building and there's a great first scene with this letter and, and you can tell it's almost like Eva is like studying for an exam or something like that because she's so worried about uh, her mother's appearance in their home and, and, and what's going to happen and how she's going to uh, deal with her and, and her life. Obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, baggage there that, that when she was growing up, you know, there was it was a very um, – she sort of had to fight hard for her love, um, so to speak. But we'll get into that in just a moment. So anyway, Charlotte comes uh, to live with Eva for a little bit and um, – and and I I suppose this is very similar to the film Persona, which we talked about a couple of months ago, where where I guess Eva and Helen are sort of like the same. We can we can view them to be the same person. So so when. So, so when Charlotte speaks with Eva or with Helena or, or talks about either one of them, I think one interesting way to look at it is that, that she's speaking to the same person, but but Helena sort of represents the sick version of Eva, and she's sort of sick because of the negligence or the ignorance that 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 Charlotte um, offered uh, offered them as, as as children, and we get into that a lot, you know, throughout the film about how you know Charlotte was this professional uh, classical pianist, and she was you know you know loved to be um, you know would have loved to just be an individual throughout her entire life and not be uh, attached to anybody. And there's clearly uh, elements of, you know, of a freedom versus responsibility or a rights versus responsibility um, thematic structure to this film. Um, but but I think a really interesting way to look at it is that the, the ignorance of Eva sort of leads to uh, the internal um, uh, the internal sickness that is then personified in her her, her sickly sister um, Helena. So so what do they do about this this relationship that does come to the fore? Uh, and, and I mean Eva does expressly state to her mother, uh, you know, you are the reason why Helena is sick, and they go through this whole um, there's a great scene where it depicts how, but we're not going to get too deep into that just now. So what do they do about that? Well, before we get into to what they actually do. Let's talk about uh, the title of this film, right? Autumn Sonata. What is autumn, right? Uh, and, and by the way, there's a lot of beautiful uh, color you know, in the film. There's these oranges and yellows in the in the in the in the rooms and everything. So we do get this sort of um, this this autumn esque uh, atmosphere throughout the thing. And I think it's quite significant. When we think about autumn conceptually. It is sort of the final days or final months before winter. So we have this idea of this, this uh, almost like a sense of urgency that this is this is upcoming coldness or this upcoming cold front that's coming. There's going to be a period um, that, that that we have to um, uh, that, that we have to. 
uh, batten down the hatches for, that we have to prepare for, um, because it's gonna it's gonna be rough going. And and the word sonata, I mean, a sonata is a, is a is a musical uh, structure uh, w- which starts with a certain theme, goes somewhere else, and then comes back with a theme, and that's actually the structure of this film as well. So it's similar to that Mike Lee film, Another Year, which went through all the the, the, the seasons and that sort of thing. It seems that there's this element of, of, of there's again we always talk about this this cyclical element to this film where where the, the starts and the beginnings of these relationships are all intertwined. You know, it is a, it is on a continuum, but within that continuum is moments of coldness is moments of winter so the answer that the film sort of provides about all that is to sort of have it out in a way because you don't want to be living through the winter without having prepared for what that's going to for what's going to ensue during that time you don't want to have to live through periods of your life where there's just total and utter silence between different um, members of the family yes there's going to be moments of ups and moments of downs um, but we need to actually have it out so that when those cold moments come we at least can be comforted or warmed by some of the the truisms, um, some of the facts, um, some of the, the true anecdotes um, that actually justify, or not necessarily justify, but but make sense of everything. We, 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 we can take comfort in the fact that we, even if we find someone difficult to be around, think about, you know, think about the holidays, right? Think about Thanksgiving and Christmas, especially these, 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 those festivities actually take place during the cold months. Uh, but we, when we talk about that they, these days during these, you know, very tumultuous and turbulent political, um, this very, uh, you know, polarizing political uh, era. We haven't talked about the idea, oh, you know, don't talk to Uncle Joe or whatever. He has these, you know, controversial conservative uh, uh, opinions that we can't talk. Oh, Christmas is always difficult. Thanksgiving is always difficult. And it's taking place during these comments. I suppose what this film is saying is that in those warmer times, when you have the opportunity, when the candles are lit and the wine has been poured, and that's actually what happens in the film. It's actually, it looks very cozy in this house. I think it sort of creates this atmosphere that, you know, you, we can have it out with each other and it'd be okay. When that happens, and, and, and when it gets more difficult later on, we'll be comforted by the fact that we actually know why our mother actually is so cold on us. And in these very long, dialogue-heavy scenes in the film, it does, it does, come, it, it does emerge that Charlotte, in, Ingrid Bergman's character, she actually went through a very similar experience that she put her own children through. Um, and, and there's a very apt quote uh, that Eva says, throughout the, that says during the film. She says, The mother's injuries are to be handed down to the daughter. The mother's failures are to be paid for by the daughter. The mother's unhappiness is to be the daughter's unhappiness. It's as if the umbilical cord has never been cut. So I suppose that's lifting up this idea of, of, of this cycle, right? Not just a cycle in terms of warmth and coldness, you know, in the way that we interact with other people, but this cycle, this intergenerational cycle, that, that if we're cold on our, uh, on our children, then they might be then cold on their children and so on and so forth. And, and so maybe in this sort of continuum of warmth and coldness, we actually need to break the cycle a little bit, or at least we need to act as if we, we, need to, we need to embrace or engage with the cycle and make sure that we, that we harvest when we can and, and then we feast uh, when it's appropriate. And, and I think what's, what's really key to this film is that Eva sort of starts to take the upper, upper ground by the end of it and starts to say that, you know, the pain that, that I've experienced or the, the pain that's personified in her sister, Helena, I can't then, I can't, that let, I can't let that 
continue to carry on through the future. And I mean, there's some logistical issues there, but but it does sort of seem, if, if we can summarize today's um, show, motherhood is this very profound responsibility. And and sometimes it is so profound and overwhelming that that we can be fearful of it, that we can be fearful of the, the pain that inevitably um, is, is the inevitable consequence of motherhood. But that then can lead, ironically, to inherited pain, to inherited sickness on the part of our own children. So in order to counter that, maybe we just need to be a little bit more honest with each other. Maybe we need to eradicate the secrets and the lies. Well, that's all we've got time for on Sacred Cinema this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Berners-Goni, on 2XXFM on the 98.3 frequency. You're listening to People Powered Radio and continue listening for more quality content from 2XX or if you're on our website, consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. But until next time, thanks so much. Um, you can contact me via all the major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, not on Friendster anymore. Deleted that account last week, but thanks for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers. Oh,